Well, today we're beginning a new series. I've entitled it Questions Aloud, uh, and you, could spell, you can spell aloud either way. Um, and uh, it's actually going to be a, a look at the book of Job. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me uh, to the book of Job, because we'll be dipping into it a little bit here this morning. Starting on page 352 is where you want to begin that in the Bibles we gave you. Um, just to give you a bit of a, 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 a pre as to what we're going to be looking at, for the, the, the book of Job, the Lord laid on my heart about this time last year. Um, and it's not a book that I'd ever spent much time in before, but for some reason uh, just sat it there with me. And the staff will tell you, I've been mentioning it every once in a while for the last year. I've got this series I want to do, and it just hasn't felt right, and now it does, and so we're going to do it. But I've learned uh, over the years of being in the ministry that uh, when the Lord you know, germinates something in your heart for a year or so, uh, you can't expect to present it in 25 minutes and have everybody, everybody just get it. So what we're going to do is we're going to just spend a little bit of time uh, hanging around in that book ourselves over the next few weeks. And today what I want to do is kind of present the, the, the context, to present the neighborhood that Job uh, was all about. And then starting next week, we're actually going to begin to read through the first chapter or two and go through some of the verses and some of the things in there. But today's really going to be a quick overview of where we're going to be heading, give you a bit of a, of a roadmap and an idea of what it's looking like. And we're going to set the premise for the series today. And the, really the premise for the series is simply this, that it's okay to have questions to, for, and about God. It's okay to ask him questions. Questions are allowed, and you're allowed to speak those questions aloud. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about. That's the basic premise of the entire series we'll be looking at. This is the first time I've ever done a, a series on the book of Job in now over 26 years of ministry. Never done a series on the book of Job. In fact, when I was looking through my old notes, because I keep notes on everything I've ever spoken on, I've only done one or two sermons that dealt with Job even kind of in passing. Uh, only, only one, I think, that dealt with Job as the central uh, focus of, of the sermon. And it's not because I, not for any reason, it isn't by purposeful design. It was just one of those, well, I didn't realize I'd stayed away from it for that length of time. I think part of the reason is because it's a challenging book. It's a, it's a dense book. It's a thick book. It's got a lot to do it. But there's very little action or plot to it. It's 42 chapters but it's chapters 1, 2, and 42, where 99% of the action takes place. And the rest of it is this vast wasteland that we'll be talking about a little bit and we'll be dipping into. Uh, but it's a challenging book for a, a lot of those reasons. What I want to do this morning is I want us to set the table by looking at three things to begin with. We're going to look at the story of Job, we're going to look at the perspective of the book of Job, and we're going to look at the importance of the book. And then we're going to spend the last half of this morning looking at the uh, idea of questions and and the approach that God has to questions and that we have to God with our questions and how God perceives all of that. So the first half of it, we're going to take a look at these, the story, the perspective, and the importance of Job. First of all, let's take a look at the story of Job so we understand what it's all about. A lot of us have heard about the book, but aren't necessarily aware of exactly what goes on inside this book that we've heard about uh, for you know, all of our lives for most of us. The story basically goes like this. Job uh, is a very wealthy man, and he's a very righteous man. He lives at the time of uh, what we call the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he lives in a land called Uz, which is way to the east of where they were. Uh, not exactly sure where Uz is, in fact. It's one of those kind of obscure things about Scripture. But he lived way back at that time. The book of Job is the first book of the Bible to have been written, written before Genesis, written before any other book. It's one of the oldest pieces of literature known to mankind. Um, and the story basically goes like this. Here's the Job. He's a wealthy man. Well, let's not have me tell the whole thing. Let's 
have the story tell itself for a bit, shall we? Go with me to the book of Job. You've got it there, page 352 in the Bibles we gave you. And let's uh, start from the beginning. That's probably a good place to start. Job 1.1, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. The next few verses tell a little bit more about his wealth and about his close family, and then we get to Job 1.6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. That makes sense. And Satan also came with them, and that makes no sense. Uh, we'll get into the details of that a little bit more next week when we go through some verse by verse, but it won't make any more sense to you next week either because it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know how Satan gets in the group of angels that goes to see God. I've, I've never met a theologian that's given me a, a, an explanation of that that I'm comfortable with yet, but that's what happened. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming, <clears throat> excuse me, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Next time God gives you a big compliment, look out. <laughs> it isn't always the positive experience you might hope for. That's what happens here. Verse 9. Does Job fear nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge of, around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then. Everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. We'll pause right there. The rest of the story basically plays out that he goes and he takes all of uh, Job's possessions. He comes back and God says, See, he's still doing well. And Satan ups the ante and God accepts it, comes back another time, continues to up it until essentially you've got Job sitting there having lost all of his family, all of his possessions. His body is ravaged with pain. It's, it's so painful that he sits and takes pieces of pottery and just scrapes the skin off of his body to, to try to ease the pain of the, the horrible things that are happening to his body all day long. It's just a horrible thing. And then he, uh, three of his friends hear about this and they decide they're going to come and they're going to comfort him. And we've known these through all of, uh, of history as Job's comforters. And they come to him and we'll see that. Go jump with me ahead to uh, Job chapter 2, verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. So his friends show up. They're amazed. They're in awe at the devastation that has happened to this man, and they just sit with him for a while. But then everything shifts in chapter 3. Chapter 3, Job begins to speak. He starts basically complaining about his situation. And then after that, they begin to speak. And for the next 36 chapters, you have this epic debate, really, about the nature of suffering, about the character of God, about righteousness, about mercy, about faith, about grief, about death, about life, basically about all of the big questions of life. These four people bounce back and forth, sometimes quite angrily at each other, for 36 long chapters in the middle of Job. 
In the middle of it, Job just shrieks in anger at God, demanding answers, asking questions. Why am I going through this, God? Please answer me. What's going on here? The people tell, his friends tell him, you must have done something wrong to deserve this. And he continues to insist upon his righteousness that this doesn't make any sense to him. The biggest problem that his friends have is that he declares he's righteous, that this, this is, I haven't done anything wrong, I don't deserve this, and they just cannot conceive that bad things could happen to someone if they haven't done bad things themselves. Then in chapter 38, God shows up. And he begins by uh, tearing into Job a little bit, but he reserves, even though it's a shorter section of it, he reserves the harshest words for Job's so-called friends here. Then eventually he restores everything that Job had, and uh, he gets, and then some, and uh, Job has uh, new children as well as everything else. So basically, Job is a comedy. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, it is a comedy because if you, if you, any of you, any of us remember from that boring high school literature class, if you stayed awake for portions of it, uh, what you'll remember is that the, uh, in the classical definition of literature, uh, tragedy is a tragedy because it ends badly for the hero. A comedy is a comedy because it ends well for the hero. That's the difference. In, in literature, comedy is not defined that it's filled with laughs. A comedy is defined that it ends positively. If you ever read any of Shakespeare's comedies, for instance, nasty stuff happens. The Merchant of Venice, I'm reading it and going, this is a comedy? This guy wants to tear a pound of flesh from the man's body. Are you kidding me? It's a comedy because he doesn't get the pound of flesh at the end and the guy, the hero, walks away fine. Uh, the bad guy suffers and the good guy does well. And it, when a bad guy suffers and the good guy does well, technically in literature, that's called a comedy. So this is a comedy. We're going to be talking for the next few weeks about the comedy of Job. So it won't be as downer as you thought it was. All right, that's the story of the book of Job. Let's take a look at the perspective of the book of Job. First part of the perspective is to recognize that it is a comedy. It does end well. So it's not about the suffering in the middle entirely. It ends on a positive, and so we have to look at it that way. It has that way. And, and part of the way we need to look at it, Job, here, here's the challenge for us. When you look at Scripture, any book you look at, there are a couple rules that you have to do in your approach to Scripture. First rule is, if you're going to do a Bible study, you want to find out, first of all, what the, the passage meant to the people to whom it was first written and by whom it was first written. If you take our um, living class, exploring living and sharing classes, we'll have a living class again in the fall. In that class, we actually teach you how to do the, uh, the, the, the share, the, the, um, those kinds of things, the Bible study and how to dig out what it meant to them then and there and so on. We actually teach you that. But for now, the principle is you've got to figure out not what Job means to me sitting in a comfortable air-conditioned room in 21st century Orange County, but what did it mean several thousand years ago in the heat and poverty of the, of the Middle East? What was going on then? What was the, the soil from which this was birthed? And if you don't have that perspective to begin with, you will never get a proper understanding of what Job is about. If the only perspective I approach Job with is my 21st century Orange County perspective, it will always be confusing. It will never have any answers. It will frustrate me. It will never help me because I'm not coming at it from the right place. Now, it will bring itself to 21st century Orange County because truth is truth is truth and it will always apply, but we've got to start back there. So let's take a look at the perspective of Job, beginning with the perspective from then and there when it happened there. Here's the challenge we have in our culture. 
When we look at the book of Job, you see the first two chapters, he's doing great. Well, the first chapter, he's a wealthy man. You see the last chapter, he's a wealthy man. First chapter, he's healthy. Last chapter, he's healthy. First chapter, he has a loving family. Last chapter, he has a loving family. Everything's great in first chapter and last chapter. And we think that that is the normal state of mankind. And we think the middle chapters are abnormal and wrong. Why? Because we're sitting here in comfortable seats in an air-conditioned room with plenty of food in our belly and aspirin in the medicine chest and no expectation that that will ever change for us, really. We live in comfort. So the middle part where there's no comfort and there's pain and it's awful, that seems abnormal and wrong to us. But in the culture in which this was written, it was the opposite. 99.9% of the people related to the middle of Job, they didn't get what it was to be wealthy. They knew there were wealthy people around because every once in a while they barked orders at them. (laughs) But that was about it. Wealth was unknown to them. Health was unknown to them. They were constantly poor, constantly sick, constantly in trouble. Life was just plain hard. Missionaries today will tell you, I've talked to a couple recently who've told me this, they use the book of Job more than any other book on the mission field when they're in impoverished areas. And the reason is because when you read through the book of Job, they get that. I talked to a missionary who's a missionary in Chad, in Chad in the middle of Africa, and she spent the last several years there um, uh, taking the, the language of a small little tribe in Chad and translating. She was with us a little while, about a year ago, Cindy Trotter. Some of you were here when she was here. And Cindy Trotter, she told me, she says, we, one of the, we translated one of the Gospels first, one of Paul's epistles next, and Job third. And Ruth, uh, and Ruth was the other one because of the agricultural. But she says, Job, they just relate to right away because the middle part of it is their life. And when they read through that middle part, they go, oh, I get that. And then they see the end where Job gets all this great stuff and they go, there's hope. hope." We look at it the opposite. We look at the middle part and go, this isn't right. Oh, that's awful. That's from our perspective. From the perspective of almost everybody else who's ever lived, Job makes an awful lot more sense. Another quick kind of humorous uh, way of looking at this is, uh, I think I've used, uh, told you this illustration before, but uh, Bono, the lead singer of U2, is a real quotable guy. Uh, most of his quotes can't be used in church, however. Nevertheless, a real quotable guy. And I read an interview with him a few years ago where he was asked, can you, can you give me kind of a definition, he said, of the difference between the American culture and the Irish culture? And he said, the best way I know to put it is this. He said, in, uh, in, in America, when a kid grows up poor, he looks at the mansion on the hill and he goes, when I get older, I'm going to buy that mansion. I'm going to make money and I'm going to buy that mansion. In Ireland, the kid who grows up poor looks at the mansion on the hill and goes, when I get older and I make money, I'm going to get that so-and-so. And he uses the word so and so-and-so, of course, because he's Irish. <laughs> Clay's not arguing with me, right? Yeah, you know, you know. You, but he said, there's the, perspective, the, there's the difference in perspective. And th- th- that second perspective, that Irish perspective that Bono talked about, is closer to the Middle East perspective. And our perspective is, is a, a glass-half-full perspective. The Middle East perspective is a glass-half-empty perspective. And so when you plant this book into the middle of that soil, it has a different feeling for them. So we have to understand, here's who they were talking to, here's the soil in which it was planted. Now, the principles that they saw from that, 
How do we extract those principles and apply it to us today? So that's what we're going to be walking through over the next few weeks. We're not going to get all of that done today because, again, we don't have the time for all of that. And I want us to kind of sit in the middle of that and have the Lord speak to our hearts about it like he's spoken to me about it for the last year or so. But you've got to have, you, we've got to shift our perspective. If we don't shift our perspective and begin to try at least to understand that other idea, we'll never get where it's coming from. Now, I'm not saying that their perspective is correct and ours is wrong. I would much rather live with an American optimistic perspective than uh, the Eastern or, or, or some European you know, negative pessimistic perspective. I would much rather live with that. But we have to understand the one to be able to translate it over to the other for it to impact our lives in the way God wants it to. All right. So that's the perspective shift we need to have. The third principle I want to look at this morning is the importance of the book of Job. As we mentioned, a big book, 42 chapters. And um, it is, without question, one of the greatest works of literature that's ever been written. It, uh, virtually anybody who writes today, if you write po- poetry, if you write narrative, uh, if you write almost anything but a science journal, probably, you owe a debt to the book of Job because so many of the principles about how great literature is written go back to that. Again, one of the oldest pieces of literature ever discovered. We don't know of very few things very many things that are older than the book of Job. And so writers learned to write out of that seed that the book of Job planted just from from a literary standpoint. So it's extremely, extremely important. And most of that beauty, most of that literary power is in those middle 39 chapters, not necessarily at the beginning of the end. So those 39 in the middle really matter. They're important. They're foundational even to our society, to our culture, to our arts and humanities. They matter. They're hugely important. The problem, though, with the middle 39 chapters for me at least, is they're like opera. There's a whole bunch of screaming and crying. There's a whole bunch of pain and anguish. And I don't understand a lot of it. And quite frankly, while I understand that it's beautiful and that it matters and that it's important, I just don't like it. Anybody know, I'm going to see Pirates of Penzance tonight. Am I going to be stuck with opera tonight? I'll be okay? I'll be okay. Okay, thank you. I just wanted to be sure. Because there was something about opera, light opera, operetta, but it's better than that, right? It's okay, thank you. I'll just Anybody have those things where you can close your eyes, you can put paint things on on your eyes to make them look like they're open? <laughs> of course that won't help my ears any, but okay. Anyway, what you've got the middle 39 chapters of Job is opera. It's important, it matters, but it's full of pain and anguish and it ain't over till the fat lady sings. Okay? When God finally shows up in 38, that's when the story starts to hit home and really matter. And so even as we're going through this, I'm probably just going to refer to that as the opera in the middle. Because that's really what it is. Uh, All of that also to say, don't worry, we're not going to go through verse by verse by verse through the entire book of Job. We wouldn't be done with it by the end of the year if we did. And it's not designed for that. The opera in the middle is not designed for that kind of study. We'll be dipping it to take out basic principles, but we'll be applying it from either end of the story. That's kind of the way we're going to be looking at the whole thing. All right. Well, to start with this morning, though, I want us to get with the idea behind the title. We'll do some of your fill-in-the-blanks for the last half of our message today. What about verbalizing the questions that we have for God? And is it okay for us? Are we allowed to ask our questions to God aloud? So that's the essence of the rest of it, is what about my questions? Have you ever had questions of God? I have. Even as a Christian, once you're solid in your faith and you know that Jesus is who he said he is and you're going to serve him for the rest of your days and you're sure about it, every once in a while something comes up, right, and it makes you go, oh, and there's a little bit of a twinge of, oh, really? 
That's kind of a challenge to my faith, isn't it? I'm not sure. Oh, I never... Have you ever gone through... I, do, I go through that every once in a while. Is it okay to even have those feelings? Because I know for me, when I get one of those, and I read something or hear something somewhere, and it makes me kind of go, oh, that's different than the Bible perspective, and it sounds right. I feel guilty for even feeling it. I don't know if you do, but I sure do. And, and then it's kind of like, oh, can I even ask that question? That's where we want to start. What about my questions? Is it okay to even ask them? Well, here's the first principle we want to lay out today. Questions don't scare God. God's pretty big. He's great. He's all those things that we've heard and sung about and we'll sing about again in a moment. And he he, he doesn't get scared by your questions. He's also not worried by my questions. He's not angry at my questions. He's not looking to be vengeful against me because of my questions. Questions don't scare God. Now, now some people go, wait a minute, wait a minute. At the end of the book, he gets really ticked off. He gets angry. They've been asking questions. Job has been asking questions through an entire book, and God shows up, and God is upset. Yes, he is, but he's not mad at their questions. If you read through it, and we will in the next coming weeks, you'll see that what God's angry at is not the fact that they ask questions. He's angry at their pat answers. He's, he's angry, for instance, at the answer that is, goes, goes all the way through it from Job's three friends where they continue to come at him over and over and over again with different versions of, if you were righteous, you wouldn't be suffering. You must have been unrighteous, and that's why you're suffering because only unrighteous people suffer. Good people have good things happen. Bad things have bad things happen. That's just the way God made it. And they keep throwing that pat answer out there, and God shows up in fury and goes, oh, no, you don't. The problem is, how many people are still teaching that today in Jesus' name? If you're good, good things will happen. Only when you're bad do bad things happen. Faith means everything's going to be great. Really? Read the book again. Because that's not a biblical approach. That's not a Christian approach to life. Bad things happen to good people. And he gets furious at them for throwing out these bad answers. Now, he has some anger with Job as well, but it's not because of the questions. One of the great lessons of Job comes from Philip Yancey, who wrote a great book that has little bits about Job in it that have been very helpful to me. And Philip Yancey said this, God prefers honest disagreement to dishonest submission. Sit with that one for a while, because that really works. God would prefer, if I'm really, if I really disagree with him, if I've really got an issue with him, he'd rather that I stated it and came straight out with it and was honest about it than, that, than to pretend that I'm going along. It's like the old story about the kid who's you know, told to go sit in the corner and won't, won't finally forces get, gets, gets him to go sit in the, sitting in the corner and the kid goes, well, I'm sitting on the outside and I'm standing on the inside. Right? And a lot of us kind of approach God that way. We, we do the outward stuff, but on the inside we're really living our own lives our own way and it's kind of a pretense and it's kind of shallow. And God would prefer honest disagreement to dishonest submission. I, I, I have a real problem with phrases such as the phrase blind faith, for instance. That's an awful phrase, blind faith. Because what it implies is that it's not really real and I can't ask any questions about it. I just have to follow it blindly. And I don't want a faith that I've got to follow blindly. I want to go through it with my eyes wide open. I want to see what's real. And if faith that is given to me from anywhere, including Scripture, doesn't match reality, I don't want anything to do with it because I want a faith that's real, that works, that's true, 
that is a part of the reality and the stuff of life. Anything less than that isn't going to get me through. The Bible never teaches that we have to have blind faith. We've been told that by some preachers and teachers and parents and so on, but that's not the case. A great example of that is the story of the Bereans. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul and his friends have been traveling from town to town. Some towns accept the message and some towns don't. But the town of Berea was the one that was given the greatest compliment of all the towns they went through. And here was the compliment, Acts 17, 11. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness. Pause right there. First part of their compliment is they heard the truth of the gospel and they received it eagerly. But that's only the first part of the compliment. Second part of the compliment is this, and examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. First part of the compliment, they accepted the gospel. Second part was they checked it out first. They didn't walk into it blindly. Everything Paul said, they opened up the scripture and said, is that true from what God said in the Old Testament, the God that we know is and is true? Is this some new cult or is this something that really is a new revelation from the God of the Old Testament? They studied it. They were careful about it. They asked questions. They were skeptical. And the Apostle Paul says, good for you. Good for you. Go into it with both eyes wide open. See, we've been convinced by our society that faith is blind but the Bible says faith has substance. Faith has evidence. It's backed up by the truth of reality. Questions don't scare God because truth is truth. And you can't ask questions that will hurt the truth. So if questions don't scare God, questions shouldn't scare us. And if they don't worry God, they shouldn't worry us. And if they don't anger God, they shouldn't anger us. We should be okay with the questions as well. Now, they will, questions will scare us if our faith is according to the common cultural definition of faith. And we talk about this here regularly. I have discovered, and the more you look around, the more you'll see this to be true, that the common, usually unspoken definition of faith in our culture is this. Faith is making something up and pretending that it's true. That's how people can say, well, your faith is your faith and my faith is my faith and it's all true. Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Well, because if it's all made up, then it's all the same. Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture says faith has substance to it. It has evidence to it. It is grounded in reality. And that's the only faith I'm interested in. I want a faith that's based on the way things are, not on the way I wish things would be. And that's what Scripture has proven to be true. If that's what my faith is, if it's grounded in reality, then you and I should both be free to ask any question anywhere at any time because truth will always stand any question you can throw at it. Ever so often I'm asked by somebody about a particular book or whatever, and I'll, every once in a while I'll have a question, is it okay for a Christian to read this book? And my answer universally is, unless it's obscene or pornographic, yeah, read what you want. Is it okay for me to read The Secret? yeah, if you're a mature Christian, you can read it and then you can realize how silly it is and then you can toss it. You know, is it okay for me to read the new books on atheism? Yeah, I'm going to be reading them in the next few weeks because I want to use some of the stuff and bring the arguments in, the questions they're asking. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't advise certain books for certain people at immature levels of their faith because we need to ground ourselves in truth and in reality. Okay, it's like going to a science class and, and, and not learning, you know, learning the, the, the weird 
you know, conspiracy theory stuff first and then the true stuff later. No, get, get yourself grounded in the reality and the truth and the, and the real stuff. But if, if it really is real, then it doesn't matter what you throw at it. Anything you throw at it will not be able to dent it if what you're believing in is actually true. And one of the signs that I've noticed over the years of people who aren't comfortable in their faith is that they don't dare have questions asked about it. Oh, no, I shouldn't, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't speak that way. You shouldn't ask that question. Oh, I would never read that book. Really? Man, is, is my faith really that weak? Is God really that weak that he can't handle a couple questions from a couple atheists? You know, the old, you know, the old saying, atheists don't believe in God, but I'm more convinced that God doesn't believe in atheists. If our faith is grounded in reality, it should be able to handle any look at reality that we can, that we can give it. Exploring any honest question with God is a valid thing because if what we're really believing is true, it will stand up and it'll be okay. But here's what we do instead. We tend to think that questions are a big issue and are a problem in our faith because here's what we think the equation looks like. Take a look at the screen here. We think questions equal doubt because sometimes it feels like doubt. A question comes up and I go, oh, I never thought of that before. Can that really apply to my faith? Is that really, is that... And it feels, it feels like I'm doubting. It feels like I'm approaching God wrong or something. That's not the true equation. The true equation is this. Questions do not equal doubt. Questions and doubt are not the same thing. As an example, I have tons of questions about how my car runs. Oh, I know how to open the hood, and I can look at it like I'm intelligent. Yeah, that must be the uh, carburetor thrust manifesto over there. And, uh, yeah, and that's the thing in the, uh, who's it, wire casing transformational, I have no idea. I can make up words and, you know, if there's a four-year-old there, I can trick him that I know something. <laughs> but just because I have questions about how my car runs doesn't mean I don't believe it can run. Because the preponderance of the evidence has shown me when I keep gas at it, keep it tuned up and turn the key, it'll, it'll take me where I want it to go. I have questions about God. I have questions about God that are not answered now and will probably not be answered this side of heaven. I question how a truly loving and truly powerful God can allow millions of children to go to sleep tonight hungry. I don't get how that happens. But does it make me question the fact that God is all-loving and all-powerful? No, I know he is. Does that match up with the other thing? I can't get it to match completely. But then again, my brain has limitations. So I've got questions, but does that change my faith in the God who is? No. Because there's not one thing in your life or one thing in my life that you know absolutely everything about and have every single answer to. Not one. So if you had to have every answer to everything before you'd proceed, you'd never proceed anywhere. You'd freeze right up. So will there be, are there questions about God that we don't get? Yep. Will they always be there? Absolutely. But questions don't equal doubt. We can have questions and still remain faithful. In fact, not only are questions not doubt, questions are the doorway to real faith. Really? How is that? How, are, how do my questions lead to faith? Well, because questions tend to lead to answers. Yeah, i got three teachers here who knew that. 
Because every good teacher goes to the class and says, don't be afraid to ask questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Why? Because if you don't ask questions, you won't get the answers. But we see God as the mean teacher who if I go, ooh, 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 I was wondering, how does that work? And that he's going to go, that's a stupid question. What's the matter with you? Go sit in the back of the class. You'll never amount to anything. I can't believe you'd even ask a question like that of me. And that's the impression some people have about God. And so we sit there and we just don't ask any questions. And we just, I guess I'm supposed to sit this way and put my hands like this when I pray. And I don't know why, but I'll just keep doing it. And it's okay to ask the questions. God is not the angry teacher. He's, when you ask a question, you have the doorway to find an answer. I think we as Christians need to be skeptical of answers that come too easily, especially regarding our faith. Too often we make it sound way too simplistic. A, a few years ago, I, I saw an interview with Billy Graham, one of my all-time heroes. And uh, he was asked by an interviewer, do you have any regrets about the ministry that you've had? Anything you've looked at and you wish you'd have done differently? And he said, just recently I've been thinking about one thing. He said, I think maybe, especially at the beginning, we may have made salvation sound too easy for people. And he gave a little bit of an explanation. Basically, you know, some people, we, we may have made it sound like all i got to do is walk up front, doesn't matter what my heart changes or not, and once I'm here, I can walk away and never go to church again, never think about God again, but, you know, I tick that off my to-do list, so I've got my ticket to heaven, you know. And he says, I think we made it sound too simplistic. We didn't talk about discipleship enough. And, and through the years, as the years went on, they changed that and they've now, they partner with churches and they make sure that follow-through happens so that discipleship occurs. But he said, that's my one regret, that for a period of time especially, we made salvation sound too easy. I think that's, that's, that's real wisdom to be learned through the years. Sometimes the answers, if they come too easily, we need to be skeptical of them because we need to have profound questions if we're going to get profound answers. So, God's okay with our questions. But while God is okay with our questions, God seldom answers our questions the way we want. Have you noticed? Hey, God, I've got a question. That's the answer. You want to say that again? I don't get that one. Okay, I'll write it down, but still don't get how... Oh, I have to figure out how that relates to the question. Okay. Right? It almost feels like that conversation sometimes. And it certainly did to Job. This book does nothing to answer the question of why bad things happen to good people, for example. Not a thing. doesn't offer you an explanation whatsoever. God doesn't even try. He doesn't even take a stab at it. <laughs> it, it it's like it doesn't, it doesn't matter to him. And it's frustrating. And some of the frustrations, at times we think, well, that's a lack of faith. That's a problem. I read a quote here by a woman who wrote a book called Amazing Grace. And uh, Kathleen Norris is her name. And she was talking about this whole idea of getting frustrated sometimes with God. And she said this, Most people feel an absence in their lives. They have a desire for something more. But when they try to read the Bible, they end up throwing it across the room. To me, she says, this seems encouraging, like a good place to start. And the point she's making there is, sometimes we come to the question, the answers too easily. And when we really confront the Bible for what it really is and confront of the, the God of the Bible for who he really is, every once in a while, it's just infuriating. I've got to tell you, there are times that I have almost taken that Bible and just tossed it across the room out of total frustration. I don't get this, God. This doesn't make sense to me. We did A few months ago, we did it with the whole Abraham and Isaac story, remember? We just talked one morning about the frustration of how does this make sense? How is this righteous for our father to put a son through that? 
And I don't have thorough answers for that. Oh, we've got some theological things here and there, but the, the frustration sometimes remains. And God's okay with that. God's answers will seldom be the answers we want, and the frustration is not a bad thing to live with because it shows me at least partly that my, my brain ends here and God's is way above, and there will always be that gap. We're going to, as we go through the series, we're going to deal with some of the rising arguments that are being very popularized now by a lot of the atheist writers now. I was in Borders the other day, and they actually have a section of books called Atheism at the end of, their, uh, of the row, and I walked, and it was like tw- 12 books, and it was Atheism was the title of the section of books at Borders Bookstore. I couldn't believe it. It's, it's, and as we go along in, in, in our culture in the next three or four years, I, I won't prophesy, but I'll predict, uh, you're going to see a, a, a significant increase in the vocalization by atheism in our society. They are becoming emboldened. They're becoming much more brave about it. And so one of the things we're going to do over the next, near the end of this, after we go through Job itself, is we're going to start looking at the modern-day questions and where those questions come from. But one of the things I've noticed with atheists is what they do is they design the questionnaire. They decide how God should answer it. And when God doesn't answer it the way they think the question should be answered, then there can't be a God. Right? That's the way it goes. The problem is that Science doesn't approach it that way. Science doesn't say, okay, here's the thing, it has to be that way, and if I try the experiment and it doesn't work out that way, well, then there's no such thing as atoms. Well, no, try a different experiment if you're going to tr- find, the, find the reality of it. Keep trying until you, you find the truth behind it rather than just disproving the whole thing. Which all leads, God seldom answers our questions the way we want. All that leads to this final one. God's questions to us, are more important than our questions to God. Your questionnaire matters to you, and it matters to God because it matters to you. But what really matters is God's questions to me, not mine to God. That's what happens at the end when God finally does show up. Take a look at it. Jump with me to Job chapter 38. After all the arguments back and forth and all the wondering about who God is and why this is happening, all the complaints, all the whining, all the fussing, all the screaming, all the pain. God shows up. Job 38.1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Or with ignorance would be another way of phrasing it. Words without knowledge is ignorance, right? With words of ignorance. Brace yourself like a man. Man, if God shows up and tells you you brace yourself like a man, hang on to something as hard as you can. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. The essential verse of the book of Job is not, Job faced all of this and did not sin. The essential verse of the book of Job is not that weird part of Satan showing up with the angels. The essential part of the book of Job is not the end where he gets the whole thing that he wants. The essential verse in the book of Job is, I will question you and you will answer me with God speaking those words. See, we've reversed it 180 degrees. We approach Job with all kinds of questions like God is the one on trial here. And God does not show up on the defense. He does not show up and go, oh, sorry about this, Job. You see, I had this thing with Satan over here, and we had this explanation, and let me tell you what happened on. Let me answer all of your questions for you so you'll feel good about me. 
God shows up and goes, how dare you, you ignorant little thing? I've got questions for you. You don't have questions for me. Now that, you know, we read that and wait a minute, he's in pain, he's hurting, he's got questions that need answers, yeah? There's a lot of pain going around. There's a lot of people hurting and there's a lot of questions. And basically what God's saying here, I think, is, you know what, my presence is enough. And then he walks through this amazing poetry. Here's his answer. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked out its dimensions? Oh, surely you know. Yes, God is being sarcastic. (laughs) Makes me feel better when I feel like being sarcastic. If God can be, then I can be. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footing set? Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And he goes on like that for two chapters. It's basically a couple of songs we sang this morning. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. And essentially what God says is, stop whining and start praising me. Because it is not about your questions to me and the questions that matter are not questions about my behavior. The questions are about your behavior. I'm going to ask the band to come up as we conclude with this. The question is not about who God is and what his behavior is. The question is, who am I and what is my behavior like? You see, reality tells us that bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to everybody. And what matters is not why does it happen this way. What matters is when bad things happen to me, how do I respond to them? What do I do? When I go through my own Job moments, do I respond in anger against God? Do I start doubting? Do I start cursing Him? Do I start saying, well, you must not exist then because I'm going through this? Or do you ask the questions and still say, but in in all of this, I know you are real and I love you and I'm going to stick with you. That's the essence of what we're going to look at next week. Is God alone enough? Or do we have to have the stuff? Because that's the, that's the question Satan posed to God. Are you enough for him or does he need the stuff? Now, the challenge of Job to us this morning is that Job really is an incomplete answer. Yes, God is great and powerful and his presence alone is enough. But we have a great privilege while we can see the context, the perspective that it was planted in as we talked about earlier. We now live not in the B.C. time, but in the A.D. time. And not only is God great, but God is also Jesus on a cross. See, while God's saying, I'm powerful and I got the answers and you don't, while that's enough, he didn't stop with what's enough. He gave us grace and gave us more. And he said, you know what? Not only am I going to tell you that I've got the answers, but I'm going to come down and I'm going to walk through your pain with you. And so we stand now on the other side of the history of Jesus and we see that God did not leave the answer as the incomplete answer of Job because it's correct, but it's not complete. It's only complete when Jesus shows up. And so I can't go to God and shake my fist and say, God, you just don't get it. See, what we have here, the arguments between those four people, these are four rich people talking about the value of poverty. Job was a wealthy man. He had wealthy friends. 
They had to be wealthy to be able to take that much time to travel and leave all their herds and flocks and all the who was you know who was milking the cows when they were gone. They're servants. Only rich people could travel. Four wealthy people talking about the value of poverty. What do they know? Only the guy who's poor at the moment knows that. Four healthy people sitting around talking about the value of, of, of pain. And the only one of the four that has a clue is the guy who's in pain. And so God says, okay, not only do I know, but I'm going to show you how much I know. And he comes down and he experiences the poverty and the loneliness and the pain and the frustration. And nobody at any time now can shake their hand at God and say, you just don't get what I'm going through because all you got to do is look at the cross and know that he does. So today we stand and we praise the greatness of God, how great he is, but we recognize that the complete story only happens after Job, and we have the privilege of sitting at that point, seeing the full picture. Let's stand together. So we're going to take a moment to worship, and as we do, I want you to take your life. Maybe you're in the middle of a Job time right now in your own life, and I want you to be able to look at it and ask yourself, Lord, has my perspective on this been right? Am I complaining and whining and fussing or am I asking valid questions and is your presence in my life enough Lord may it be so let's worship Lord you are enough knowing that you are and knowing that you care Lord may that be enough sure we've got questions and thank you for letting us ask them Thank you for answering them, although not always in the way we want them answered. You do answer. You're not uncaring. You don't just leave us to suffer without reason. Lord, help us to recognize our response to the challenges that are in our way is what forms us into the people that you want us to be. Help us, Lord, to be your people. Help us over these next few weeks as we sit in this story that you would help us to contextualize it to our lives to be who you want us to be to ask the questions to find some answers but to come to trust you more through all of the doubts through all of the faith through all of the questions through all of the answers through all of the circumstances you are God thank you Lord pray. Amen. Amen. Hi there. If my voice sounds familiar because you've just been listening to a message from me, my name's Carl Vaders. If the voice you're hearing now is different from the voice you just heard, well, either way, the message you just heard was preached at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. And we're just tagging this on to the end of, in case you got a copy of a copy of a copy of something, and I'm not sure where it came from. Cornerstone Christian Fellowship is located at 17575 Euclid Street in Fountain Valley, California. You can get a hold of us through the phone number 714-962-5412 or check us out on the web at cornerstonefv. That's cornerstonefv for Fountain Valley.com.